Thank you for listening to the Rivers Church podcast with Pastor Andre and the Rivers team. Be sure to subscribe for a weekly dose of encouragement and inspiration to help your daily life. We pray that this message will help in whatever season of life you might be in. Well, I've been spending the last couple of months in the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles because I've wanted to track the journey of the leaders of the Israelites, their strengths and their weaknesses. And one of the prominent characters in those books is David. Now, David is one of the characters in the Bible who went through everything. I mean, he's the guy who is famous for killing the giant Goliath but also the guy who's notorious for sleeping with his friend's wife and then killing him off just to keep the secret. So he experienced the wide range of God's character as he brought his successes to the Lord and his failures as well. And out of the overflow of his life, he wrote many of the Psalms that we read in the book of Psalms. And so today, I simply want to take you through one of the Psalms that he has written because it gives a beautiful indication of what we should expect of the Lord our God. Everyone okay? So let me just lay a bit of a foundation. There's a bit of a long run-up to the title today, but I need to set the tone for what I'm going to speak about. Now, we know that the first legitimate king of Israel was King Saul. And at the time, the most notorious enemies of the Israelites were the Philistines. And on a particular occasion, the Philistines mustered their strengths against the Israelites, and they had one major champion named Goliath the giant. And he was so big, and his weapons were so foreboding that nobody wanted to face Goliath because they were too afraid. And so onto the scene comes David. And he's filled with faith and filled with passion. And he comes and stands against Goliath with incredible courage. He takes small stones and puts them into a sling, takes one uh, one shot, flings the stone at Goliath. It lands in his forehead. The scripture says it's sunk into his forehead. I love the descriptiveness of the Bible. Makes the best movies possible. I would have loved to have seen how the stone just sunk into his forehead. Goliath fell down dead, and it was a great victory for the Israelites. And people love singing about violence. We hear about it today. So even back then, they made this song about how Saul has killed his thousands. And you can just imagine Saul saying, you know I killed my thousands. He would have been very chuffed. But then they sang, and David has killed his tens of thousands. That was thrilling for Saul. You know, I've just killed my thousands, but David's killed his tens of thousands. <laughs> and so this jealousy towards David grew and grew and grew. In fact, on a number of occasions, Saul tried to kill David out of his jealousy. It got so bad that David had to run away from home, and he lived in exile for a while to escape Saul. And he left a lot behind. He left the strength of the kingdom behind, all the resources that he enjoyed. There's a very sad moment when he and his best friend, Jonathan, who was the son of King Saul, had a very emotional parting of ways. And so David runs off. And by the time we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 21, he is an emotional wreck. He's exhausted. He's tired. I wonder if there have been any moments in your life when you can recognize that sort of lack. Lacking friends, lacking family, lacking resources, lacking joy, lacking direction, lacking... Do you you ever know what that feels like? So in 1 Samuel 21, we see that Saul uh, arrives at an area called Nob, and there's a priest there named Ahimelech who's very suspicious, seeing David looking so emotional, saying, well, what are you doing here? And David lies. 
He says that I'm on a mission from the king, and I need some resources, I need some help. Ahimelech believes him and gives him some resources, gives him some bread. David says, I need a weapon as well. And Ahimelech says, well, I've, I've got a weapon for you. In fact, it was a weapon that David was very familiar with. We read in 1 Samuel 21, the priest replied, the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the, in the valley of Elah, is here. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There's no sword here but that one. And David said, there's none like it. Give it to me. Now, it's not true for him to say that there's no weapon like the sword of Goliath because David was far more proficient with a slingshot. I mean, he killed Goliath with a slingshot, not with a sword. Nevertheless, what a boost to his morale to now have the sword of the enemy that he destroyed. I mean, this sword was the main symbol of his defeat against the Philistines. This sword, everywhere that he went with the sword, people would say, hey, that's the guy who killed Goliath. That's the sword of that great giant. So I think it would have boosted his morale, made him stand a little bit taller. But again, bearing in mind that David is not in an emotionally strong state. He wasn't in a good position. Now, if your life is not in a good place, and now you've got this super recognizable sword of the giant Goliath, the Philistine, where's the one place that you should not go if you don't want people to recognize, I killed this Philistine? Well, you probably wouldn't want to go to the Philistines. But where does David go? He goes to the stinking Philistines. Not only does he go to the Philistines, he goes to the hometown of Goliath, who he killed. When he went there, they recognized him. He started freaking out. And then we see his behavior became very erratic as he tried to take his life into his own hands. It says in 1 Samuel 21, he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Now, the question I have is where is that bold man of faith that stood in front of a giant? Where's the man who ran into battle with just a few pebbles and a slingshot and defeated the giant? Well, certainly he was still in there, but David got to a position where he was so weakened by his lack so distracted by what he did not have that he defaulted to deception and lies to provide for himself. I think he became so focused on his lack that he lost sight of his God. None of us is a stranger to lack. And I wonder what your lack might be today. Maybe it's a lack of money because that's the most obvious one that I think people deal with. I, I can't pay for my kids' school fees, and I, I can't manage to pay for all of my bills, and I just don't have what it takes, and there's just so many resource lacks that I have. Well, David had many resource lacks, but he also had a relational lack. He was lonely and isolated. He had a security lack. He was unprotected. He had a purpose lack. In our lives, we can lack vision, we can lack energy, we can lack capacity, we can lack faith. And the truth is that when we become so focused on our lack, we forget that the God of provision has never left our side. So I want to encourage you today with a simple message entitled, The God of Provision. 
And my goal today is not to give you a number of how-tos, and I love the practical messages. I love having something to do, but in this instance, I just want to inspire your faith and highlight the character of God because I believe that if we can find security and confidence in the truth that God is a God of provision, it just makes life so much better for us and we can weather those storms that much easier because we have confidence in the character of the one who holds our lives in his hands. We read that after the scenario, David escaped to a cave in an area called Adalim, and in that area, a whole bunch of unscrupulous characters gathered around him, all people who were disgruntled with life, but it was in that cave that David had a change of heart, and he regrounded himself in the truth that God is a God of provision, and he wrote Psalm 34. And I want to take you through that psalm today because it's a wonderful reminder that our God is indeed a God of provision. And we need to remind ourselves of that because when purpose dries up, when there is war in other parts of the world, when trucks are being burnt on the N3, when load shedding is back to stage six, when there are water cutouts that we're having to deal with, when you have to take out a loan to buy a box of bananas these days, when you don't have enough money to get to church, when we face all sorts of lack, we must remind ourselves that he is the God of provision. So let's jump in and read Psalm 34. Is everyone doing all right this morning? You've warmed up yet? The chosen frozen are in the house. (laughs) Psalm 34, verse 1. It says, I will praise the Lord when I'm in the mood. No, 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 sorry. I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. I will boast only in the Lord. Let all who are helpless take heart. Come, let us tell of the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. The first point I want to make today is that provision is linked to praise. Church, we don't always notice it, but whenever we face lack, our primary need is not, in fact, the thing that we are lacking. Bearing in mind that David wrote this psalm before there was any measurable progress in his life. He wrote the words, praise the Lord, before he had the substance returned to him that he was lacking in his life. He's saying, praise the Lord before you get what you need. And praise the Lord before you have the breakthrough. And praise the Lord when you can't see an end in sight. He prioritizes praising the Lord where there is zero indication that God has done anything to provide for his needs. He says, praise the Lord. And there's a very clear reason why, church. Because when we face with lack, there are two things that disappear from our lives, two things that immediately run away, and that is hope. Hope that things will get better. Hope that I will see this through. Hope that there is breakthrough. Hope that another day will come. We immediately lose hope and we lose faith. Faith that God is good. Faith that God will bring me through this. Faith that I will live to see another day. These two things immediately disappear when we focus on our lack. And so we no longer rely on God. We depend on our own strength. And we start to fret because I don't have this and I don't have that and I need more of this and I need more of that. And the more we fret and the less joy we have, the less hope we have, the less inclined we are to turn our hearts to the Lord. And this is exactly what happened with David is that instead of turning to the Lord, he turned inwards and he turned outwards. He didn't turn upwards and so he went backwards. And whenever we turn within ourselves to try hustle, and whenever we turn to other people to think that, well, they will meet my need, 
we ignore the fact that God is on our side. So why praise? Why does he prioritize praise? Why doesn't he prioritize prayer? And why is the focus not on fellowship with other believers? Well, it's because praise is a reaffirmation of God's qualities and his nature, coupled with a recollection of what he has already done in our lives. And so praise has this unique ability to bring the perspective that whatever I am facing, like Pastor Kogi said, God is bigger still. And it brings the perspective that God has not brought me this far just to bring me this far. And wherever I am now is simply a stepping stone to wherever God wants me to be. Praise reminds us that he has done remarkable things in the past, and so he can do remarkable things in the future. Praise brings the ability to hope and to build our faith and to restore joy to our lives so that even if things do not turn out in the way that we expect them to, we are either so sufficiently supplied in our souls to allow God to take us in a different direction, or if we do receive what God has given to us that we desperately need, we don't get the glory and keep it for ourselves. We always return it to the Lord. Now, praise sounds like such a happy word, but it doesn't always have a very happy expression. I'm not talking about tambourines and waving flags over here. Sometimes praise is simply that dogged determination that I will praise the Lord. I don't want to, but I will think about the goodness of the Lord. It's an assertion of the confidence that we have, that no matter how helpless I feel, God is with me, he is for me. It's saying when I can't see it for myself and when I don't have the remembrance to say that God has done this before, I will gather around other people who will tell me how good God is and who will remind me that he's done these things before. And can I encourage you, church, this is why it's so important to be in God's house. This is why faith cannot exist in isolation. You cannot call yourself a Christian if you never, never gather around other Christians. We need to be in God's house because we cannot build our faith on our own. I love what David says. He says, let us tell. A better translation of that phrase is actually, let us magnify the Lord. The wonderful thing about magnifying something is that Take, for example, this over here. I've got a wonderful telescope over here. And if I were to have a squiz in this telescope, I can have a look all through. I can see some lovely faces out there. I can see the person sleeping over there. A couple of blackheads that need to be dealt with. When something is magnified, you don't make the thing bigger you just make it bigger to you. So if I want to take a look at the moon, I'm magnifying the moon. I'm not making the moon bigger. I'm just making it bigger to me. When we magnify the Lord, we're not making God bigger. We're making it bigger to me. We're saying when I magnify the Lord, I'm saying, no, God is bigger than the challenges. He's bigger than the pain. He's bigger than the lack. He's bigger than the things I don't have. And this is why we must magnify the Lord through our praise. Because when I'm stuck in a small place because of lack, God is the one who's big enough to pull me out. When I'm stuck in a place where I don't have things, God is big enough to provide for every single need. And can I encourage you, church, praise the Lord. Whether you like it or you don't. Don't come to church and just stand and worship like this. 
Raise your hands and praise the Lord because you make him bigger. God cannot be made bigger in and of himself, but he can be made bigger to you. And the bigger he is to us, the greater our faith becomes, the more emboldened our hope is established, and the greater we have the capacity to keep on going when we feel like we are running dry. Amen. Let's keep on reading. Psalm 34 verse 4. Everyone okay this morning? It says, I prayed to my bank account, no, sorry, I prayed to the Lord, and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. In my desperation, I prayed, and the Lord listened. He saved me from all my troubles, for the angel of the Lord is a God, and he surrounds and defends all who fear him. The second point today is that God alone is our source. Many people don't pray to the Lord, but they certainly pray to their bank card. Please have money in you, please have money in you, please have money in you. How often do we turn our focus and our attention to the rich friend or the rich relative who has so much money, and if I can please just borrow just a little bit, and I promise I'll pay you back at my next paycheck. In, my, in our desperation, we can stop praying and rather just turn to a loan shark who now wants to take a bite out of your life because you didn't have the capacity to pay it off in the first place. We very quickly first turn to other people or other mechanisms, and we leave God out of the equation. Now, I'm not saying that we mustn't use the mechanisms around us to help us in life. Doctors are wonderful, and, and people who can help us, thank God for them. What I'm saying is that we mustn't ever view those things as our source. God alone is the source. So your employer and your clients are not your source. They might pay your salary, but they are not your provider. The government is not your source. And no law or politician is ever going to care enough about you as an individual to put your needs ahead. No, no change of law is going to be the answer for your life because the government is not the source. Your doctor, your medication, your psychiatrist, your children, none of these things are the source for the lack in our lives. God alone is Jehovah Jireh. That's a name given to God in the Bible. It's a name given to God in the Bible by Abraham when he was in a position where he desperately needed the Lord to provide. And I love the aspect of that name, Jehovah Jireh. Literally, it means the God who will provide. It's set in the future tense. Not only the God who has provided then, but the one who will provide in the future, he's clearly not done yet. I think David lost sight of this. That's why David ended up looking at the sword of Goliath as a source of strength. He thought that the Philistines could be a source of safety for him. And whenever we lose sight of the fact that God alone is our source, that's when we start to compromise with deceit and lies. That's when we fret at the trouble that we face in life. That's when we settle for a weaker faith and a smaller view of God. But when David faced Goliath for the first time, what did he say? 
In 1 Samuel 17, it says, David replied to the Philistine, that's Goliath. He said, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. I feel like I want to say that to some people I deal with on the road sometimes. Now, in this instance, he had all the provision that he could ever possibly want. He had all the weapons of Israel. The king himself tried to put armor on David. He had all the provision that man could offer, and yet he rejected that because he knew that he was secure in the provision of the Lord. That's why he could run into a great time of trouble with just a slingshot and five pebbles because he knew that God is my source of victory. God is my source of strength. God is the one who, when he is upon my efforts, everything will eventually work out in the end, and I may not know how it's going to get there, but I know that God is mine source. Can I encourage you, church, that social media is not your source of affirmation, and the opposite sex is not your source for fulfillment, and your child is not the source of your purpose, and your money is not the source of your strength, and your intelligence is not the source of your value. And these things are wonderful, and they certainly add richness to life. But if these things are our source, that the moment those things disappear from our lives, then we will be left in a very weak and compromised position. And the truth is that those things will always fade. Children grow up, and they move out of the home. Money dries up when the economy changes. Social media is never going to build your character and your strength. But when God is the source, though a child might leave, you stay strong. When God is your source, when money dries up, you still have hope. When God is your source, there might be comparisons all over you, but you know who you are in the Lord. So what does this mean for us? It means we'll pray. And, and don't treat people and places and pleasures and possessions as if they are the source of strength in your life. And if you feel disqualified in your life because you think, well, well I'm the cause of my lack. Well, well, David was the cause of his own lack as well. Think, well, God doesn't want to deal with me. I know that he should be my source, but I made this mess of my own life. Well, well so did David. This wasn't a spiritual attack on his life. This was people and his own foolish decisions that brought him to this position where he faced lack in life. And yet... God was still able to turn it around and bring him to security. Let's keep on reading. Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you, his godly people, for those who fear him will have all they need. Even strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. Third point I want to leave you with today is that the fear of the Lord conquers fear in lack. The fear of the Lord conquers fear in lack. Facing lack very often prompts fear and doubt. What's going to happen? How are things going to land? When is the money going to come in? How am I going to eat? What if it snows again? How will I pay? What's going to happen with the water? Why did my child say that? When am I going to sleep again? There might be a whole lot of fear. And fear causes us to do silly and irrational things like David going with the sword of Goliath to Goliath's hometown. David lost sight of a very important component of the fear of the Lord. And we know that that isn't cowering in fear of God. It's not being afraid of him. It's a deep reverential respect of the Lord. 
In the same way, perhaps, that you'd stand at the foot of the Victoria Falls and you'd hear the water gushing over the edges, millions of tons of water every moment. And you'd be so in awe of the power and the beauty and the magnitude, but you probably wouldn't go swimming in the waves because you will die. And the same is true for the Lord, that we should have this reverential respect for Him, that we recognize His power, His glory, His strength, and His might. But man, you don't want to book with the guy. Because he is so big and so strong, and he can get rid of us in an absolute moment. Now, he won't do that because of his love, but his power and his strength and his glory demands respect. I think too many people have lost sight of the fear of the Lord, and they've settled into an overly familiar relationship with God that reduces him to the level of a friend or a companion. But can I encourage you? God is not your homie. God's nobody's homie. Because your homie is probably as broke as you are. (laughs) Our homies have the same weaknesses and flaws and challenges that we do, but God is perfect and He is limitless and His supply never, ever ends. If we reduce Him down to the level of just a friend, and if He's no longer the God who deserves our love, our respect, and our devotion, well, we'll never have the fear of the Lord that keeps on lifting us up. And when we do have that fear of the Lord, we recognize His power, His magnitude, and His grace. And how can we have such a great understanding of the greatness of God and think that, well, He's going to ignore me? Of course He won't. But this is what we do. We say, Lord, I've got a need. And I'm too busy to read my Bible because things are just too busy right now. And I can't get to church because I just need to work. And Lord, I just don't want to be with those Christian people because I just don't like them right now. And Father, I just really just, I don't have time to pray. I've whispered a prayer this morning and I just, you know, I know that you'll be here. And you know, I've heard about these pastors, you know. And then we go and say, Lord, where are you? Father, what's, what's, why aren't you coming through for me? Whenever we live without a fear of the Lord, we do the exact opposite of magnifying Him. We make Him smaller and smaller and smaller in our lives. And the smaller God is to us, we won't build our faith. We won't trust His goodness. We won't rest in His grace because we made Him so very small. Now, our attitude to God does absolutely nothing to minimize Him in and of Himself. But we make Him smaller to you and me. The fear of the Lord is not a passive attitude. It it, it drives us to action. It goes on to say in Psalm 34, verse 11, Come, my children, and listen to me, and I will teach you to fear the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord doesn't come naturally. We need to train ourselves to get there. Does anyone want to live a life that's long and prosperous and, and see the outwork of the fear of the Lord over here? It says, Then keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. And so the fear of the Lord is an active thing that should drive us to doing good. And can I encourage you? When you're facing lack, don't expect God to provide something that you should produce. And when we live outside of the fear of the Lord, we expect Him to do everything. But when we live within the fear of the Lord, we recognize there's a part for me to play. There's something that I should do to honor the Lord in the outworking of my life. And so that means that I will cut back on unnecessary spending and actually start being wise with my finances. 
The fear of the Lord drives me to contact the person I'm living in strife with and actually reconcile with the person. The fear of the Lord says, I'm going to stop sitting on my money saying, God, give me breakthrough, give me breakthrough, give me breakthrough. Instead, I will take my tithes and my offerings and give them to the Lord as he has said that I should. And then the blessing of the Lord will flow in my life as the Bible promises. The fear of the Lord drives us to action. And in the process, we see the provision of the Lord. When we live in fear of the world and fear of lack, we begin to withhold from God. We withhold from people. We withhold from God's kingdom because we are afraid. But if we live in the fear of the Lord, there has to be evidence throughout the outworking of our lives that God is active in our life. But so often in that activity, through the fear of the Lord, God is able to provide. Let's keep on reading. Psalm um, Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right. His ears are open to their cries for help. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. He will erase their memory from the earth. The Lord hears his people when they call for help. He rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Isn't that beautiful, church? The final point I want to leave you with today is that God knows about, he cares about, and he makes good on every single need. Have you ever jumped into your car and you're blasting the radio, singing your favorite song? I know what it's like in Joburg. It's way worse down in Belito and Durban where there's like a boot jaw at every intersection. But the moment you're blasting your music and you get to a busy intersection, what's the first thing you do? You turn on the music. And why is that? Because you want to focus. And the reason is that when we focus, we don't only focus with our eyes, we need to focus with our ears as well. There's something very telling from these verses that we've just read because it says that God's eyes are upon us and his ears are listening to us. It goes to show the incredible focus that God has upon our lives. Now, to be clear, God doesn't exist for us and he doesn't exist to meet every single one. We exist for the glory of God. And this shows then, though, that God's focus upon us is not obligatory, it's voluntary. God chooses to focus on us. He sees every single detail of our lives. Scripture says that he records every single tear that's fallen from our faces in one of his books. He's focused upon our lives. And so when we face lack, though we might feel alone, we can have the confidence to know that we are never alone. He sees every single need, and he is poised to do something about it. Now, in the process, he deals with evil people as well and those who've done us wrong. And so even when we've been hurt or wounded by somebody else's behavior, we don't need to take vengeance upon ourselves or upon them for ourselves. God is the one who says, I will take vengeance, says the Lord. Vengeance belongs to him. So we don't need to bring justice for ourselves. We should entrust it to the Lord and trust that he will deal with things in his own time. It says that his face is turned away from evil people. And why is it? Because his face is focused on you. His faith is focused on your needs and your challenges and every single cry that we cry out. This is a hope for the single mother who doesn't know how to make things work. It's hope for the person who doesn't know where their next meal is going to come from. For the man who has failed and doesn't know how to get up again. For the person who's trying to confront their past. For the person who's desperate to find a partner in life. 
He hears every single one of these cries. Goes on to say that the righteous person faces many troubles, but the Lord comes to the rescue each time. For the Lord protects the bones of the righteous. Not one of them will be broken. Calamity will surely destroy the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. But the Lord will redeem those who serve him. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. You know, church, God never promises no trouble. In fact, he almost guarantees that there will be trouble. And we must anticipate that the provision of the Lord is not always as we expect. And we shouldn't waste our, tri- our time trying to understand the purposes of the Lord. Why have you allowed this? And how could you let this happen? God is still sovereign, and only He understands certain things in life. It's not up to us to understand. It's simply for us to keep our faith and to take one more step. However, we must recognize that God's provision is greater than our understanding. And so we may not understand why my child is going wayward, but God knows how to meet that child's need. He knows how to meet your needs, so yield to the process. Keep your faith strong and take one more step. Sometimes he doesn't solve the problem, but he provides courage for the difficult conversation. Sometimes he allows pain so that he can provide comfort. Sometimes he allows trouble so that he can build our confidence. Sometimes he wants to provide the opportunities to forgive or to provide the boldness that's developed through the word. Maybe he wants to provide the peace in the trials and the uncertainty. Maybe he wants to provide the comfort in the grief or to provide the strength in weakness. So often we say, well, Lord, take away the weakness. He says, no, I want to provide my strength. We say, Lord, take away the pain. But he says, I want to provide my comfort. God, take away this difficulty. He says, well, I want to provide every single step that you need so that when we live our lives, it is not marked by one moment that is pain-free where we think, hey, I think God is for me. But our lives are marked by daily evidences that God is with me and with me and with me and with me and providing and providing and providing and providing. He doesn't want us to get to the end of the life saying, well, I think God's been good. He wants us to get there and saying, God has been good good to me. He has provided for me. And can I encourage you, church? You have survived 100% of everything that life has thrown to you to this point because you are here and you are breathing. You have survived because God has provided. We hope you have been blessed and inspired by this message. 